Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies podcast, which operates online through the New Books Network. I am Shir Ali Tarain, your host. Shanila Koja Mulji's Forging an Ideal Educated Girl is a path-paving and incredibly timely monograph that combines tools of education studies, gender studies, and post-colonial genealogy to interrogate the promises and paradoxes invested in the idea of girls' education. Shifting her camera of analysis between global discourses on female education and empowerment and the translation of those discourses in the form of educational policies, cultural developments and political maneuverings in post-colonial societies like Pakistan, Koja Mulji masterfully unveils the fraught nature of an otherwise often taken-for-granted ideal of girls' education. Through a close and careful reading of varied and often colourful state and non-state archives, this book traces the often contingent and contradictory projects of nationalism and citizenship reflected in competing imaginaries of the ideal of an educated girl over time, with a focus on the context of Pakistan. This remarkably lucid text will be widely read by scholars of education, gender, South Asia, and post-colonial thought, and will also make an excellent choice for undergraduate and graduate seminars. Here now is my conversation with Professor Shanila Koja Mulji. Hello, Shanila. How are you doing? Hi, Shirley. I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to have you on New Books, uh, on the New Books Network. And uh, thank you so much for this incredibly important uh, and uh, well-written and uh, theoretically uh, sharp and uh, lucid book. So really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, okay. We have a, a tradition on the New Books Network, Shanila, that our first question is always biographical. Uh-huh. Uh, could you share with our listeners a bit, uh, uh, some sense of your intellectual journey, how you became a scholar of gender, Islam, uh, uh, Muslim societies, uh, South Asia, uh, and how you got to write this particular book? Uh, sure. So, um, as you know, I am originally from Pakistan. Um, and I think that scholarship um, often in some ways is autobiographical. Um, and so during my master's, um, I started thinking about women in Muslim contexts, particularly um, in Pakistan. And I had a chance to work with um, Leila Abulugad um, to look at women's piety movements in Pakistan. But um, as I uh, moved to my doctor, um, program at Columbia, I started thinking a little bit more um, about this convergence on the figure of the girl um, in international development policy and practice. Um, And so you'll find that um, in a lot of development campaigns today, um, girls in the global south, they are portrayed as 
um, not only threatened by poverty, disease, and terrorism, um, but also holding the potential to resolve these very problems. Um, and um, education is often presented as this sort of primary um, social practice that can help girls to reinvent themselves and achieve their potential. And so um, during my doctoral program, I was writing a lot about how the black and brown girl um, figures in these development campaigns um, to look at the kinds of promises that she makes um, for societies, but also to look at how she actually circulates in um, the global north. Um, I was particularly interested um, in pointing out how the burden of development and ending poverty is being shifted onto girls, um, which also in, uh, in crucial ways kind of depoliticizes and um, ahistoricizes poverty in these particular contexts. Um, but as I was doing this work and thinking a little bit more about it, I was reminded um, about this um, enticement of the figure of the educated girl, um, that it's not a new phenomena. It's actually, um, there is the appearance of the Muslim um, woman in colonial archives um, and all sorts of um, social entities and um, reformers were interested in the education of the Muslim woman as well. Um, so you'll find colonial administrators, um, Christian missionaries and also Muslim social reformers um, who all for different reasons they wanted to also um, imagine that education would save um, civilized or reform native women and so for the book I um, decided to trace um, these different articulations um, about the figure of the educated girl um, in the context of colonial India and Pakistan, because those are the contexts that I'm most familiar with, and I had the language skills to go into looking at the archives as well. And so I wanted to just look at how this figure appears um, in that part of the world, what are some of the conversations that were happening internal um, within, within the colonial Indian and then later Pakistani context, and what does she promise for whom um, and how is she supposed to be educated and what are the politics around that? Terrific. So let's begin with a broad uh, question that has to do with the larger uh, goals of the book. Perhaps I could have you reflect on the title of the book, which uh, part of which is Forging the Ideal Educated Girl. I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk a bit about how this title connects with the broader conceptual goals and themes of the book, some of which you've already talked about. Right. And, and in mm -hmm. what ways does this whole discourse, I mean, clearly this is a project that uh, you know, travels from the 19th century to to the uh, early decades of the new uh, nation state of Pakistan. But but in what ways do we see this kind of discourse persist even today in you know both the global south and the global north? Right. Um, so um, so as I mentioned, so as, if we were to think of the figure of the educated girl um, as discursively produced, and that's how I imagine um, the figure of the educated girl. So I'm not um, trying to look at um, particular girls um, and their lives, but I'm actually looking at how um, different entities and social reformers talk about this girl, um, locate this girls in and through um, text and visualities. And so 
that that was one of the reasons why I chose this sort of term around forging um, the ideal educated girl and to look at how does how is she formed, where is she placed, um, how is she described, and crucially, how does this articulation shift over time? And so you'll see in the book that um, I try to map different kinds of articulations. Um, so the book is divided into three different periods. Um, we're looking at the turn of the 20th century the early decades after the political establishment of Pakistan, and then the turn of the 21st century. And within each of these periods, I'm trying to also map at different articulations of the educated girl. Um, and I argue that the articulations that take, um, that become most salient or become most dominant are also an effect of relations of power. Um, but at the same time, also point to the fact that there is no one sort of idea there are multiple articulations vying for dominance. And so because the book tries to tack some, like, track some of these contestations, um, I, I thought it would be interesting to, to imagine this sort of enterprise as an attempt to forge particular kinds of girlhoods. Um, and to, your, to the second part of your question, I think um, these, um, these ideas are, are quite prominent still today. Um, as I mentioned, I think... Um, the international development regime is one of the uh, one of the most prominent spaces and sites where you will find um, articulations of ideal girls, particularly um, through discourses on education, um, but also uh, discourses on life lifestyle skills. That's a big thing these days. Um, you also find other idioms in and through which girls are to be saved or reformed. Um, I'm teaching a course on politics of girlhood at Bowdoin these days, and um, we are currently talking about the discourse on child marriage and how um, the figure of the child bride is also a, a fairly racialized um, and religion subject and how the discourse on child marriage is used to also mark particular girls as needing saving. Um, the discourse on female genital mutilation is another one that I've been writing about um, around how um, particular girls are centered in that discourse. And then menstrual hygiene campaigns. That's another um, idiom in and through which we can imagine these um, the wretched state of black and brown girls who are expected to be saved and reformed. And they have to be taught how to uh, maintain their bodies, to contain their bodily fluids, etc. Um, and crucially, um, in a separate sort of line of inquiry, I'm also arguing around how um, these discourses of, of um, producing particular imaginations of girls and then reshaping them are also taken up in, in political um, and penalizing discourses of, um, say, the immigration and border policing discourses in the U.S. and um, in, in Europe as well. And so this incitement, this incitement is, as I think it's a very sort of um, prominent, it appears differently um, and the girl, girl is being forged in these different multiple sites across the world, yeah. Terrific. So one of the major strengths of this book that I found uh, was that not only is it uh, centered in the contemporary context, but it is also historically grounded. And mm. you begin actually in colonial India to look at some of the beginnings of, of this uh, uh, discourse of the ideal female subject. Um, and uh, so I have a couple of questions on, on that on that mm -hmm. part of your book. So, uh, let's focus first on these writings that you focus on by, you know, for lack of a better word, Muslim male elite writings mm. on on the ideal female subject. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about, uh, I know you look at multiple kinds of writings, but if you could use a couple of examples to speak about the kinds of arguments that we find in these texts and what was the broader context in which this whole 
form of uh, uh, textual production uh, uh, took place in, in colonial India. Let's focus first on the male Muslim writers before we move to the female ones for the next question. Sure. Um, so as you know, um, this period is um, it's marked by increasing anxiety on the part of um, elite social classes. Um, they had previously enjoyed privileges in the Mughal courts, um, but after the entrenchment of the British rule, they were now struggling to, in some ways, preserve their social status. Um, and so one of the things um, we find is that there are there is an um, there is a way to rethink um, elite status or sharafat in and through um, women and their social practices, and so um, there this the emergence of women um, is another site in and through which the elites could signal their social class, and that's why you'll find a range of reformers, religious reformers, more modernists, also also nationalists who are trying to imagine. Um, their futures um, and their desired sort of social um, status in and through the figure of the educated woman. Um, and so there are lots of writings um, that I write about in the book. I think um, in terms of male social reformers, you'll find um, that Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan, um, he argued that it was not necessary to invest in the public education of women. Um, he broadly believed that Muslims needed um, to study the English language and Western sciences um, in order to recover their status in India. But he overall emphasized the education of boys over girls, and he believed that girls could get an education um, at home in through their male relations. But what happens is that by the late 19th, early 20th century, um, there is a sort of wave of social reformers who, um, who are actively working with the British government as well to thinking about um, education of women. Um, a lot of times they're trying to raise funds for government schools uh, or for Islamic schools or articulating for greater provision of funds um, so that female teachers could be um, hired to, to teach elite women at home. And so um, there is one particular reformer, um, Mumtaz Ali, who advocates in his um, work, it's called Hukuk and Iswan, um, and he, he calls for um, uh, giving access to all so forms of education, uh, all forms of knowledges to women because they share the same intellectual faculties um, as men. He also um, wanted to enable women um, to develop the skills that were necessary for becoming a, um, a better and a more interesting companion to their husbands. Um, and so there is this sort of distinct new subject that is emerging um, where we find the woman as a homemaker, a companion, uh, a child rarer, right? So this uh, sort of imagination around women emerges. Um, and that subject requires specific training and social and elite male reformers are writing about that as well. Um, there is also um, some reformers make allowances for women um, to get an education that might allow them to engage in paid labor. Um, and in that context, I find um, Aga Khan III's work very interesting. And I really love one of his quotes, uh, and I'm going to read it now. Um, so he basically is talking to his female followers, um, and he says, quote, I am trying to guide our young women's lives into entirely new channels. I want to see them able to earn their living in trades and professions so that they're not economically dependent on marriage nor a burden on their fathers and brothers, unquote. And so... Um, I argue that um, the social reformers are also writing um, with particular constituencies in mind. Um, the Aga Khan likely is writing 
um, and has at the forefront the welfare of his female followers, um, who likely came from lower um, socioeconomic classes. And so the need um, for education for paid work um, may have been greater in that space. And so you find him writing from that sort of subject position. Um, we also have Ashraf Ali Thanvi, um, the ulama from the Dioband uh, Madrasa. Um, he was unwilling to compromise on the prevalent sort of practices of seclusion. And so he argued for um, increasing women's basic literacy skills um, just so that they're able to communicate with the outside world um, and engage in religious uh, in religious practice. And so um, all of these different sorts of views on what women, um, what type of knowledges are needed for women um, also influenced the pathways um, that these male reformers sort of identified for women. So Ashraf Ali Thanvi, for example, wrote books and he imagined that women would not leave uh, the, uh, the Zanana to acquire education and that um, this literature was enough for them. Whereas Aga Khan III, he actually established schools for girls in remote parts of Pakistan because he imagined that girls will have to leave some of these spaces to actually go to schools um, and to get an education. And so there's a lot of, um, they're competing um, imaginations of what type of knowledge is women need. And so they also um, bring forth different kinds of sort of material interventions. And how about such uh, texts by uh, female Muslim authors? Right. You could give an example or two how they might be similar to, but also might differ from uh, the ones that you just uh, very nicely described. Right. I think what was most interesting for me um, was that I found that women also um, were similarly... Um, their views in education were fairly similar to those of men, um, and they were not also united on this front. And so you will find um, women who were really adamant that they did not want to leave the Zanana to, um, to acquire knowledges, and so they called for establishments of funds um, so that they could hire female teachers or Ustanis to come at home. Um, but there were also women who uh, believed adamantly. And so I've analyzed these uh, women's writings in magazines, right? And so this is where I'm sort of gleaning this, um, these views from. And so there were women who uh, wanted access to British schools uh, because they believed that they needed to learn the sciences and the English language. And there was no other way for them to progress or for the calm to progress without access to such knowledges. Um, and then you know, there were other women who... Um, wanted the establishment of Islami schools, so Muslim schools for girls, um, and they often used to call out male social reformers um, for not um, investing enough effort in raising funds for these types of schools as they were doing for men at that same time. And so there was a lot of uh, internal um, conversation around how Muslim social reformers, male social reformers, had to step up um, and to provide resources for women, too, in much the similar ways that they were doing for men. Um, in the book, I analyze um, and work through the writings of uh, Muhammadi Begum in particular. Um, she has um, she's a pioneer sort of Muslim um, writer in Urdu, but also an editor. Um, she has a range of texts, um, and some of them are specifically about the education of girls, and they're written for girls. Um, and so I look at a text called Sugar Bedi, Sharif Bedi, and then some of the other texts in which she's talking about this Ghafil Lurki, the ignorant girl. 
Um, and I, I look at how each of these figures is classed in particular ways, um, which also means that she's called on to acquire skills that would help her to reproduce her social class, um, in addition to um, the fact that she has to uh, care for parents, be a pious woman, etc. And so um, in the book, I highlight some of these different um, imaginations around these girls, which actually produce these girls as well um, as class subjects. Terrific. So now let's move to uh, the part of your book in which you talk about uh, Pakistan and its early years. And um, uh, so in what ways was this discourse of an ideal uh, woman, uh, how did it become a part of Pakistan's modernization drive during its early decades, which is one of the major focuses of, uh, of uh, the second part of your book? And in what ways uh, did these sorts of state projects and discourses uh, how do they authorize the production of a certain kind of nationalist uh, uh, femininity or a nationalist vision of the ideal Muslim woman? Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this uh, chapter of your book in which you talk about how this whole discourse of the ideal Muslim woman gets uh, uh, mapped onto and folded into this whole modernization drive during the early decades of the Pakistani nation state. Right. Um, and so uh, so this is the time where um, we find a lot of discussion about what does it mean to be a Pakistani citizen. Um, there's also discussions around um, the need for the nation to modernize, um, to, um, to become technologically and scientifically advanced, um, and also quite, and concerns around, okay, what is the role of Islam going to be in this new nation? And so um, we find a lot of writing not only by these newly created citizens um, in, um, in women's magazines and newspapers, but also um, the emerging bureaucracy and state leaders, all of whom are trying to imagine um, what would the new citizenry look like and what it needs. Um, and so some of the things, so I look at um, early state documents around education policies um, to, to understand how education was to forge um, Pakistani citizens who would be um, trained to partake in the development and modernization of Pakistan. Um, and within this sort of discourse, we also find um, uh, the emergence of these idealized figures. And so women appear as mothers of future citizens, and that's why they need good education and they need to be um, brought into the sphere, the education sphere. Um, but also an articulation of women as daughter workers. Um, and so particularly middle-class and low-income women are being called on to participate in the industries, um, the feminized service industries, for example, uh, working as teachers, working as air hostesses, learning psychology, etc. Um, and so the book kind of looked at, looks at some of these state-sponsored um, documents and discourses and political speeches where we find articulations of women as um, mothers and women as daughter workers. But I also look at um, um, this a fascinating a study that was done um, with girls during the 1950s, where the author um, categorizes girls into ultra-modern, modern, and Pardanashin. And so it was fairly interesting because there is this sense that um, the modern girl is the ideal Pakistani girl. If you are Pardanashin and if you practice religion in ways that calls on you to excuse yourself from um, co-educational um, settings, that means that you're not actually partaking in the nation building, building project. And if you are ultra-modern who um, is enamored by the West and who 
um, learns English but not Urdu, um, then too you are actually not the ideal um, female subject that the nation needs. And so that book was very interesting um, to, to see how um, the, the modern girl is imagined as a subject that is not only um, that practices piety and religion in specific ways, but also has a very active role in um, the development of Pakistan during this time period. And one of the strength of the book, of course, is that in addition to the state discourses, you also look at the sort of non-state actors of how they also contributed to certain articulations of ideal female educated subjects. And I, I was particularly intrigued by the ways in which you talked about uh, the articulations of desired and undesired female educated subjects. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about some of these articulations as they emanated from uh, some non-state actors and what kinds of uh, media did such discourses travel in and, and what kinds of domestic and international anxieties were they trying mm-hmm. to confront and overcome and pacify in producing this, this uh, vision of desired and undesired female educated subjects? Right. Um, so, like, so if we take that study that I was just talking about, um, so you find this notion of the ultra modern girl, and I think that um, that subject is um, so. Some of the things that the ultra modern girl does is that she part she goes to parties, um, she probably drinks and smokes. Um, she um, uh, she's enamored by the West uh, and she looks down upon Pakistanis. Um, she doesn't want to learn um, the Urdu language and she um, wants to practice. Um, she wants to learn English, for example. Um, there's one particular articulation of her as playing piano, for example, and learning how to dance. And so there is this um, imagination um, that particular subjects who um, who are not aligned with the nation's goal uh, of developing the nation and progressing the nation and um, learning the national language. You will uh, recall that the language of Pakistan are at the forefront. Um, and so the imagination is that um, we need for those those subjects are not desired for the progress of Pakistan, um, and and then there is these other sorts of um, media as you mentioned where um, there are representations of women that emerge. So um, PIA um, advertisement, the Pakistan International Airlines. Um, there um, you have uh, images of women as air hostesses. Um, but what is most interesting is that. As the nation calls on women to enter the waged work domain in order to um, partake in the nation in the national progress, um, it also articulates them in ways that kind of circumscribes their roles. And so, the air hostesses, for example, are called on to become air hostesses and apply to PIA to actually work, um, but they're often articulated as being good for that job. Um, because Pakistani daughters are ideal caregivers. Um, and the fact that they are so good at that, that um, they can transplant their caregiving skills into this sort of um, a service of the, the tourists, for example, right, or the travelers. And so the articulation of women still um, gets um, circumscribed, even though some spaces for work become open um, for women, particularly in the tourism industry um, and and in the education industry to some extent as well. Now, another, I think, excellent uh, thing about this book is that not only is it attuned to the Pakistani context, but you constantly fluctuate the camera from the uh, the specificity of the Pakistani context to, to global discourses around this whole idea of 
the empowerment of Muslim girls and women and so forth. And I was wondering if you could uh, comment a bit about this broader global discourse of empowering uh, Muslim girls and, and, and women, uh, you know, especially since uh, in the, the example that you gave of the case of Malala Yousafzai and, and the mm. production of that example in, in the West. Uh, I was wondering how this broader global discourse uh, informs and inflects the Pakistani context and and also what are some of the major conceptual and political problems uh, that might seem, well, you know, obvious to an academic audience, but I think it's still useful to to uh, uh, flesh it out in the brilliant ways that you do in your book. So I was wondering if you could speak about this discourse, the global sort of discourse of empowering Muslim girls and women, and then also comment a bit on how it informs the Pakistani context and what are some of the problems with this. Right. So, um, so as I mentioned earlier, I've been looking at... Um, how the figure of the girl is invoked in the international development policy and practice, and particularly um, the girls' education discourses. Um, and my key, um, and so of course, Malala Yousafzai has become um, the kind of symbol of girls' education, and of course, she's doing amazing work. Um, and so, in the past, I've I've, I've um, analyze the ways in which she is articulated within these campaigns um, to call attention to um, the, the wretched condition of women in Pakistan, but also in and through that how Islam um, and Muslim men are invoked as being uniquely oppressive towards women. Um, and then crucially how there is this drive to... Um, um, to articulate the free market as the primary site in and through which girls can experience empowerment. And so the idea is that you go, you're supposed to go to school, um, delay marriage, delay uh, bearing children, enter the waged force, um, waged work, even that, if that means working in the sweatshops or factories. So Nicholas Kristof has an article, uh, it's called Two Cheers for the Sweatshop. Um, and how there's, the, so these are imagined like, I mean, the market is imagined as the primary sort of space that can emancipate and empower girls either through consumption or through waged work. Um, and so that, that becomes really problematic for me. Um, and, and I think um, in, in a very sort of important way, it depoliticizes poverty and how the conditions that women um, and girls in these parts of the world are experiencing um, have become this way um, in the first place. And so there is a, it abstracts um, the current situations from history um, and it shifts the burden of development onto girls, which I, um, which I think is unfair because girls often um, do not have the scaffolding to um, elevate themselves and their families and their nations out of these conditions. Um, and so, so my key concern has been around how we can have a deeper conversation around um, around education, the purposes of education, but also um, around poverty and um, displacement and dispossessions in some of these um, geographical contexts that are centered in girls' education, transnational discourses. Now, before I move to the next question, I should mention uh, to the listeners that uh, the book also has some really uh, um, instructive uh, and interesting images, uh, as you were, especially in relation to the last question uh, of, of you know the, the the PIA air hostesses from the early decades of the uh, of the Pakistani nation state, and some really interesting advertisements in both Urdu and in English, which are not only very illuminating but also at times quite hilarious. So I should, yeah. <laughs> I, should, I should point that out. Um, so the next question that I have for you, which is sort of the final substantive question, is I wanted to ask you about 
this uh, study that you analyzed towards the end of your book mm-hmm. in, in uh, South Pakistan uh, on the question of education in religious minorities. Uh, tell us a bit about the major features and findings of that study and how do those findings undermine yeah. these universalizing discourses and claims of girl empowerment through education discourse? In other words, when you look at the local context and its own specific dynamics, as you saw in the study, how do they interrupt this universalizing uh, discourse of girl empowerment through education? Right. Um, so I, so as, as you know, I'm from Pakistan. And so I went back to the community where I grew up and I've been working in the same context as a researcher and also as a volunteer for over a decade now. Um, and so when I was trying to think about some of the ways in which um, the promises of girls' education unfold in a local context, I thought that it was most appropriate to go back to where I um, came from. Um, and so I, I conducted um, a few focus groups um, in this context, and my um, my hope was to engage with um, girls who are um, who would self-identify as low income or low middle income uh, from being in those uh, uh, represent those families, um, and also the community is Shia, and so there are religious minorities um, as well in the context of Pakistan, and so. I wanted to see um, how what their experiences of schooling were and if they actually had a critique of their schooling. Um, and um, there are a few major things that I found. Um, the, the first thing was around how, um, and we, we know this in the field of education, that schooling um, is, con- the consumption of schooling is differentiated by social class. And so the low-income girls from my study often wanted to get an education in order to end up in what they call an office job. Um, and so these, um, and I, in the book I write about how office job is a code um, for jobs that might be secure from sexual harassment. Um, these are jobs where you're either working as a teacher or a secretary or a typist or uh, a program officer at an NGO. And so the assumption is that you're not on the roads and um, being in these office spaces might actually shield you from harassment as well, which we know is just an imagination that women experience harassment in all these sorts of places as well. Um, but I think um, there was this sense that um, that girls desire to end up in those jobs. Um, but the flip side of that is that these office jobs are also fairly classed. And so the group of girls that I was speaking with um, they would most likely not end up in these jobs. They would likely end up either um, in factories, there is a nearby pharmaceutical factory, uh, or they would be engaged in reproductive unpaid tasks, um, working in the fields or working as maids in um, domestic households. Um, there was um, there were a couple of girls who ended up in my focus group who are from the upper middle class um, um, category, even though I hadn't um, actively sought that category. Um, and they wanted um, to acquire an education to find better husbands. Um, and so um, they believed that if they inserted doctor or engineer in front of their names, um, they could entice um, husbands who uh, were well-placed economically. And so they didn't imagine that education would allow them to enter the workforce because they didn't actually want to enter the workforce for them education would allow them a sort of life where they did not have to work. Um, and so um, Fida Edley has also found um, similar evidence from, um, from Jordan, and uh, the World Bank actually has called this a gender paradox, where um, girls are consuming education for reasons other than entering the labor force. And so the reason here um, is marriageability. 
Um, but coming to some of the critiques that the girls advanced, um, I think one of the um, main critiques of school knowledges um, from girls from the low income or middle income category was around how um, they were not able to acquire training in Hunar. Um, and they described Hunar as being um, skills that might allow them to access um, work in uh, in some ways in the informal sector, but also allow them to um, figure out ways in which they could secure jobs that were outside of office jobs as well, because implicitly they also understood that office jobs were classed and they probably wouldn't get those and um, be able to make money through those. Um, and so this critique, um, I, I was reading this as um, a, a way in which um, the rise of mass schooling has also led to a sort of consolidation of what can be taught in schools. Um, and in Pakistan now, we find a multi-track sort of education system. So you have public schools and private schools, and then you have technical schools and vocational schools where the girls could have learned some of those skills. Um, but these latter institutions are often, um, often where... Uh, unfar uneducated people go. And so the idea is that even though they desired um, the schools which they could have gotten from vocational schools, they couldn't go to these schools because they also didn't want to be labeled as uneducated people. So the final thing is around um, how um, some of the participants articulated this critique of schools as failing um, religious minorities. And so as I had mentioned that um, my participants were from a religious minority background, they were Shia, um, and they, um, they understood that schools um, produce the ideal Muslim um, who is imagined as Sunni. And so schools do this through the Islamiyad curriculum, Pakistan studies curriculum, teacher appointments, textbooks, dress codes, etc. Um, and so there was an anxiety around how their subject position um, was erased and their particular interpretation of Islam was not centered in school um, and what that might mean um, for them. And so this community, for example, has developed um, evening religious education schools. So students go to the, the school in the morning, they come back to their homeworks and then go to um, the evening religious education centers as well. Um, and so, um, so I wanted to get at some of the ways in which schools and school knowledge is also failing religious minorities. Um, and so to overall, then this chapter um, kind of highlights the possibilities of education for girls, but also um, some of the limitations um, that schooling introduces, particularly for girls from low income um, or religious minority backgrounds. So as we're coming towards the end of our time, Shanila, could you share a bit with our listeners about what's the next uh, project that you think you're working on? Yes. So I am currently working on um, extending um, one of the lines of inquiries that I wrote about briefly in the book. Um, it has to do with um, the autobiographical text Hayat -e Ashraf, which is um, composed by Muhammadi Begum during the early 20th century. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to engage with this text um, to argue how we can reanimate Muslim women's um, autobiographical writings um, toward decolonial ends. And so, um, um, as you know, the text is quite generous because it has um, writings from Bibi Ashraf um, herself, um, who was one of the earliest Muslim women school teachers, um, but also her daughter and her editor, Muhammadi Begum herself. And then now I am interacting um, as a Muslim woman from that part of the world with the text as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to see how the text um, travels across time uh, and continues to teach us lessons about gender and education. Forging the Ideal Educated Girl, the Production of Desirable Subjects in Muslim South Asia, 
by Professor Shanila Koja Mulji, published by the University of California Press uh, in 2018. Thank you so much, uh, Shanila, for uh, the, you, time, for this wonderful conversation, for giving us so much to think about, and for such a splendid and important uh, book. So thanks so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks. So this was my conversation with Professor Shanila Koja Mulji about her wonderful new book, Forging an Ideal Educated Girl. I hope you enjoyed this interview. And I hope that you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.